and welcome to Comically Pedantic, where we take a detailed look at the complicated concepts, characters, and history of comic book culture. I'm your host, Derek L. Chase, and joining me on this episode is the lovely Austin Rose. Hello. Thank you for joining me. This uh, this is actually this is the first episode, and I am uh, uh, cautiously optimistic about how this is going to go. A little bit. This is actually also going to be a little bit different because we're recording in the same apartment. Uh, which is not the normal setup that I do. And we tend to have, uh, we have a lot of animals that are probably up and moving around at different points. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully they uh, are, they stay out of our way a little bit. Um, but I, I think this will be fun. I think we have a, like a, a good um, episode in front of us. I'm really excited. Now, on July 28th in 2019, an angry 19-year-old cut his way through a wire fence surrounding the Gilroy Garlic Festival in Northern California, carrying in a semi-automatic rifle and opening fire on the gathered public. And by the end of this assault, the shooter had killed three people, as well as wounding another 17. Three short hours later, the subject of today's piece decided, while flipping between Fox News and CNN, to tweet the following. If you were a witness to the hashtag Gilroy Garlic Festival shooting, please sign on to Interface by WinHub, and in parentheses, free app, and you can set your price to take calls. Use keyword GilroyWinHub.com. Now, the man who tweeted these words is none other than the creator of the satirical office humor comic, Dilbert. That man is Scott Adams, a part owner in WinHub. Now, it's important to note that Scott Adams says that he regrets this tweet. Sort of. Scott said that he had only one regret, using the phrase set your price, mainly because the people who sign up for the site are not required to charge for an interview. Adams tries to play this off as an attempt to to, uh, facilitate greater access to information from people who are actually there, instead of turning a horrific tragedy into a commercial for his new business. And he takes great offense at anyone saying that what he did was inappropriate. And in one follow-up tweet, he referred to the outrage as fake by saying, it's a news gathering tool like CNN and Fox News, among other uses. No fake outrage necessary. This is one of its intended purposes. So, so essentially, uh, he is saying any negative reaction to this is not genuine, which is a way of dismissing criticism and positioning himself as the visionary or the genius, which is a tactic that comes up often when discussing him. But in order to understand who he is and how these behaviors present themselves, we should talk about his history. Uh, and, and had you ever actually heard of this specific uh, instance before, like him using a uh, mass shooting as a commercial for his business or, or Scott Adams in general? Um, I haven't heard of this specific incident, but I did read... Uh, the newspaper growing up and I was a big fan of the comic section so I have read the comic strip before I have no idea though anything about the creator or this incident specifically oh it's gonna be fun (laughs) I am very intrigued though as to what a garlic festival is because you know actually I never I didn't actually look that up. I just know that it's a, it was a festival. I'm going to have to... I just, uh, I just need to know, like, what is a garlic festival? Because it sounds amazing. I That is one of those things I should have looked up before doing this. And I, I just kind of wrote it and I was like, I don't know. It's a festival. It's the name of a festival. Maybe it's the name of someone. I really hope it's just, like, different garlic Just dishes. a bunch of garlic <laughs> in different various forms. Because <laughs> sign me up. 
so, uh, so let's talk about Scott Adams. Um, Adams was born in 1957 in Wyndham, New York, the son of Paul and Virginia Adams. And according to a blog post that he authored named Let's Talk About Hitler, where he argued it is racist to compare Trump to Hitler due to his German heritage, he is of half-German descent. In two other posts uh, and an interview he did with Joe Rogan, he also claims to have English, Irish, Welsh, Scottish, Dutch, and a small amount of American Indian ancestry. Adams has a Bachelor of Economics from Hartwick College and a Master of Business Administration degree from the University of California in Berkeley. Adams is also, uh, or, or sorry, Adams has also attended the Pierre Clement School of Hypnosis, where he studied to become a hypnotist. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, God. All right. <laughs> While earning his degree, he worked in telecommunications at Crocker National Bank in San Francisco from 1979 to 1986. And it's during his tenure at the bank that he began his satirical takes on office uh, life with recurring characters, one of which was later named Dilbert at the suggestion of Adams's boss. And later he would acknowledge uh, that the name Dilbert was taken unbeknownst to him by his manager from a series of comics and posters during World War II that featured a character named Dilbert Groundloop who did things that uh, pilots should not do in order to show the, the terrible and comedic outcomes. But regardless of where the name came from, Dilbert stuck and a new wildly successful comic strip had its star. Before that could happen, however, Scott um, had to get his cartoons sold. <laughs> So over a few months, he sent out several submissions of both Dilbert and non-Dilbert cartoons to publications such as Playboy and The New Yorker, all of which declined to offer publication. Um, in an interview, Adams said that he almost gave up on working as a cartoonist, but was saved by a letter he'd received from a, a cartoonist he had asked for advice about a year prior. The letter simply stated that they wanted to make sure that Adams had not given up yet. Which, why I mean, that's, was that's nice. comic denied, though? Like, why? Was there a reason? Or was it just it's competitive? I mean, it's, it's, it is a very competitive field. Uh, so, and, and especially, like, in, in, with newspaper uh, comic strips, a lot of these get syndicated. So there's, like, big organizations that sort of buy these up. Uh, and you work on them uh, all the time. Uh, one, of my, one of my teachers, uh, when I was in the Kubert School, uh, High Eisman, worked on like name a comic strip and he worked on he was working on Popeye uh when uh, when I was his student it's yeah, fascinating stuff but uh, I mean but like you work for like a big corporation and getting new stuff in there is is pretty difficult I, I mean you also have to, the, the the format of of comic strips and newspapers is actually way more complicated than it seems because mm -hmm. depending on like the Sunday uh paper or whatever you have to sort of uh, set up a small joke and pay it off, but then you also have to remind people of the story that you're telling. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so especially some pages uh, will run only certain, certain numbers of panels. So you have to know what panels are going to be cut out. It gets really difficult. Okay. And actually, uh, just recently, there was um, uh, an artist who, <laughs> uh, they, they took her, her, um, cartoon out of the paper because people were offended by it but they were also like they were offended because they were getting the wrong idea about the joke it was a, a, a white woman wearing like um like a MAGA hat turning to a black woman in a grocery store who had a shirt that said I can't breathe she had a mask on and the lady was like well maybe you could breathe if you took the mask off that was the cartoon and people were offended um, because they thought 
it was, I don't know, it, it, people were offended for different reasons. There were people that were like anti-mask that were offended. There were people who were offended about like the politica, uh, politicization of a comic strip. It's, it's all very silly. Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, later, Adams would recall his time in Crocker National Bank and how he had been in a management training program, but was called into the boss's office to discuss his possible promotion. And according to Adams, he was told that the company had recently been busted by a local news organization for not having enough diversity in upper management, which meant that Adams, a white man, could not be promoted. And in 1986, he started work at Pacific Bell, a telephone company, and while there, he found inspiration for more of Dilbert's characters and ideas, mocking the very business culture he was forced to work in. He continued to tweak the comic until it was picked up by United Media in 1989, giving him his first real success as a cartoonist. Hmm. Now, during this time, Adams would claim that he skyrocketed through the company, heading directly for upper management. When he was called into the boss's office, he was told that Pacific Bell had recently been busted by a local news organization for not having enough diversity in upper management, which meant that Adams, a white man, could not be promoted. So that's, that's actually, it's this, it's this, this is a thing that comes up quite a bit with him. And actually his real wording was that he was unqualified for any sort of promotion because he had boring DNA and a scrotum, which seems at odds, it seems at odds with an interview he gave in uh, Inc. Magazine in 1996, in which he stated that he told all of his bosses he would resign if they ever felt his costs exceeded his benefits and then voluntarily complied when he was eventually asked to resign due to budget constraints. <laughs> so he has some conflicting uh, uh, stories about what happened there. <clears throat> this didn't really seem to hinder him in any long-term way. In any case, he spent the next few years working full-time at Pacific Bell and drawing Dilbert at night. The success of the comic was gradual, but was strong enough that by 1994, his cartoon was being published in 400 newspapers. On the success of Dilbert, Adams had attributed the success to two factors. He added his email address to the panels of the comics, which allowed for direct feedback from readers, and his firm belief in affirmations. Do you know what affirmations are? Uh, Like, is that a specific like comic book thing or affirmations as in like praising like, uh, like um so it's it's the practice of positive thinking and self-empowerment um we actually know a couple of people who practice this in their daily lives and it's one of those things that like i kind of get it but i also have m- my own issues with it <laughs> oh is that like when you get up and you're like i'm gonna do great today or like that kind of thing or yeah i mean that is that is the sort of the the uh the non um, controversial way of doing it. I, I, it's not even that controversial. I just, if you take it to its logical uh, e- extension, it becomes weird. Uh, so often this is expressed as a carefully worded statement that is either spoken or written down repeatedly to foster a positive mental attitude, which allows for success in anything. This is a key concept to new thought books like The Secret or Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. Um, uh, so uh-huh. I, You've, you've heard of The Secret. Yeah, uh, I've heard of this, yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot of people don't know about Think and Grow Rich, which is sort of the original uh, version of this. I mean, there were ideas around at the time. Napoleon Hill is a huge con artist, and he spent well, his entire... I thought entire- reading that book. 
recently like in public i saw someone reading it and i was like that's so stupid and i laughed but so napoleon hill uh he spent most of his life just doing different things to try to make as much money as possible but all of those ways are just different uh illegal activities for the most part or 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 legal by uh by a very strange definition yeah so um like barely legal uh, yeah, and so the way, so the reason Think and Grow Rich was able to even be published, uh, he lied about his own success. <laughs> he was wow. dirt poor, and he got, uh, he he convinced someone that he was rich. He literally, like, played being rich and convinced someone that the way he got rich was through the the idea of affirmations and positive thinking. So then they gave him money in order to publish this book, which then actually did make him a lot of money. Hmm. Um, So this is a weird topic for me because I am generally behind the idea of trying to think positively and finding ways to cope with anxiety and depression. All about that. But I like the idea of meditation and other tricks to deal with psychological issues. But this is a type of new thought that can be a little bit more complicated. While most who practice affirmations tend to focus on how this allows them uh, some control over their lives through positive thinking, the flip side of it also becomes true. If you can make yourself successful and rich by just thinking positively, then those who are unsuccessful and poor are just not thinking positively enough. That means that the blame falls on them. And this is also where prosperity theology grows from. And that's the idea that God has blessed the righteous with money. And if you are righteous enough, God will bless you with money too. That's where you get your Joel Olsteins uh, and and people like that. Wow. Uh, I have so many thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I, I originally gave Adams the benefit of the doubt when I wrote this because I hadn't heard him make these specific claims. That changed, however, when I listened to an interview he gave where he described mental prisons that people are stuck in, which keep them from prospering and praise Donald Trump's pastor, who is a prosperity gospel advocate. Mm. The truth is that Scott's beliefs firmly break down. If you, are, um, if you are rich, it's because of you. And if you are poor, it's also because of you, which doesn't have much room for socioeconomic history, like say, I don't know, slavery or the laws that bar homeownership for the disenfranchised. I didn't know <laughs> that the secret to being rich was just to, you know, will it into existence. I I wish I knew that when I was younger. It would have made my <laughs> life a lot easier. <laughs> oh, man, where's all my money then? <laughs> uh, in, in The Dilbert Future, which is a book that he wrote, um, Adams went on to say, the idea behind writing affirmations is that you simply write down your goals 15 times a day and somehow, as if by magic, coincidences start to build until you achieve your objectives against all odds. Prior to my Dilbert success, I used affirmations on a string of hugely unlikely goals that are all materialized in ways that seemed miraculous. Some of the successes you can explain away by assuming I'm hugely talented and incredibly sexy, and therefore it is no surprise that I accomplished my goals despite seemingly long odds. But some of my goals involved neither hard work nor skill of any kind, and I exceeded with those, too, against all odds. And I, uh, that part is kind of fun for me because I, I do want to point out he is clearly joking when he says the thing about being hugely talented and um, incredibly sexy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also like pointing out that like, oh, I succeeded at things that require no work or skill. Like, okay, good for you, man. 
Regardless of what role affirmations actually had in his success, he doesn't seem to spend much time focusing on this as a philosophy. Other than his background as a hypnotist and his belief in positive thinking, he isn't much of an esoterically spiritual kind of guy. The closest he seems to get to this are his books on religion. Uh, God's debris relies on the theory of pandeism, in which God blows itself up because it knows everything except what it is to not exist, and thus becomes the cause of our universe. Uh, He further suggests that followers of theistic religions are inherently subconsciously aware that their religions are false and that this awareness is reflected in their consistently acting like these religions and their threats of damnation for sinners are false. So basically, if you believe in God, you know that you're wrong. And therefore, that's why you are the way you are. (laughs) This is so, like, my brain hurts trying to unravel all of this already. Uh, so, and, and all of this is still dancing around uh, what Adams is actually best known for, which is the comic Dilbert. And it's been described as a satirical office humor comic strip. Uh, the titular character is an engineer with poor social skills and a barely existent romantic life. Most of the jokes tend to rely on how office workers are undervalued, underpaid, and often forced to fit into a business culture that generally makes no sense. This premise also relies on upper management being egregiously incompetent and overly obsessed with bureaucracy for bureaucracy's sake. The idea tends to boil down to effort is not rewarded, but mundane tasks are. Often it's just the characters reacting to ridiculous and superfluous decisions that get in the way of actual productivity. And I can see why that makes it, like, that's there's some appeal there. I totally get that. I've been in plenty of positions uh, where it feels that way. It's not hard to see how this idea caught on with office workers and immediately began to spread. A lot of people really felt like this was their voice, and it was expressing a feeling that they were unable to, which is essentially that upper management was withdrawn from the actual work, therefore unable to truly understand what they were implementing, and that the bureaucratic nature of office life was actively hindering getting anything done all of which adds up to constant mismanagement. The strip didn't truly start out this way, but it wasn't far off. Original strips were more centered on Dilbert and his dog, Dogbert, in their home and involved both weird inventions and Dogbert's somewhat amoral nature. When the strip moved from Dilbert's home and into Dilbert's office, it really hit it off with readers and quickly spread. Dilbert was being published in newspapers by United Feature Syndicate, which is also known for Peanuts, Garfield, Marmaduke, Mm and like plenty others. But it also quickly began being used in business magazines, such as Fortune magazine. The strip is also known to be run in the business section of papers rather than the cartoon section due to its subject matter. Cultural critic Tom Vanderbilt wrote in The Baffler magazine about his experiences of working for a very large media conglomerate in 1997 and the threat of downsizing that hung in the air. In this piece, he wrote, and I'm going to apologize, this is a little bit longer of a quote. No worries. So what was the talk around the water cooler? Plans to organize? Formal protests over the company's shoddy personal practices? No, no, no. We talked about Dilbert. Hardly a day passed in which we made no reference to the great subverter of corporate hierarchy, in which I didn't see Dilbert's winsome visage flickering on a neighboring screensaver or peering out from a mug in the employee kitchen. In the face of real threats from a ruthless and all-too-knowing management, we turned to a fantasy office world in which managers were obvious incompetence, in which new motivational schemes were self-evidently ridiculous, and in which anonymous cubicled office drones held the real power. 
Even downsizing seemed innocuous in Dilbert, a a practical joke that was always happening to someone else. What seems remarkable about all of this now is the curious relationship between Dilbert and all the absurd management fads and mission statements that it mocks. Its refusal to do anything more than gripe helped more to naturalize the managerial culture than to subvert it. As corporate America tears up the social contract, it should come as no surprise that Dilbert books have become a popular gift from managers to employees, or that executives have begun to ask the comics author to lecture at their conferences. Symbolic acts of everyday resistance, it turns out, are healthy. They are exactly what the boss wants to see on your cubicle wall. And later on, he continues with, This is a time of enormous, in many cases, record profits for corporations. But this is also a time of peril for them. Many people resent what, the pro- uh, what this profitable process has been doing with, to their lives. Layoffs, low pay, shrinking health care benefits, heightened on-the-job tensions, overwork, heavy-handed uh, supervision. It has become clearer that big money investors and most workers have very divergent interests. The conflict is fundamental, whether you call it class warfare or not. Dilbert does not encourage class warfare from the bottom up, except perhaps in petty and silly ways that are sure to be ineffectual. But contrary to its reputation, Dilbert provides real service to the prevalent class warfare being waged from the top down. Labor unions haven't adopted Dilbert characters as as its insignia, but corporations in droves have rushed to link themselves with Dilbert. Why? Dilbert mirrors the mass media's crocodile tears for working people and echoes the ambient noises from Wall Street. So it's, it's hard to oversell just how much Dilbert was saturated into the corporate sector. And as evident in Vanderbilt's own words, it wasn't just the white-collar workers that loved seeing the satire, but the management itself that seemed to enjoy having themselves reflected in this strip. And it might seem a bit strange for those uh, that are the most lambasted to embrace what seemed to be the vehicle of their own mockery, But that's only if you don't dig a bit deeper. In The Trouble with Dilbert, the book, media analyst Norman Solomon and cartoonist Tom Tomorrow point to Adams' take on employees, quoting again, Writing in The Dilbert Future, Scott Adams comes up with a broad caricature of workers as swindlers. Employees today goof off with the telephone, email, internet connections, and their computers. It all looks like work to the unsuspecting employer. And in a similar way uh, that news media often encourages us to identify with the fortunes of Wall Street, the Dilbert motif is a continuous series of riffs about how middle management stupidity and severe employee deficiencies are depriving the corporation of its appropriate level of profits. In Dilbert, the corporation is the most profoundly aggrieved party, ripped off and undermined by employees who are inveterate slackers. So if you ever actually like read Dilbert, it the... Uh, the mocking seems to be on the surface of the company as a whole, but really it's just sort of like these people are not doing their jobs. And uh, by, by doing that, they are taking money away from the corporation, which is the one that uh, really needs to be upheld at all costs for some reason. Mm-hmm. So Dilbert and others that work in his office often find themselves the victims of whims of management. But they never seem to openly question it. Further in the book, Solomon points to Xerox's corporation use of Dilbert in internally distributed inspirational pamphlets, stating, Xerox management had recognized what more gullible Dilbert readers did not, 
Dilbert is an offbeat sugary substance that helps the corporate medicine go down. The Dilbert phenomenon accepts and perversely eggs on many negative aspects of corporate existence as unchangeable facets of human nature. Then adding, as Xerox managers grasped, as Xerox managers grasped, Dilbert speaks to some very real work experiences while simultaneously eroding inclinations to fight for better working conditions. The lack of actual substance as criticism comes up more than once. And in 1996, when Bill Griffith wrote the Boston Sunday Globe magazine, he was writing on the evolution of newspaper comics over the last 100 years and throws a hilarious amount of shade. I'm going to read just a few excerpts from this piece. The daily newspaper comic strip is 100 years old, and it looks it, shrunken, pale, shaky, one foot in the grave. Diagnosis, in desperate need of new blood. Instead, it gets Dilbert. Dilbert is all the rage. Dilbert is on the bestseller list. Like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles of a few years ago, you cannot avoid Dilbert. But is Dilbert a comic strip? Kind of. More to the point, Dilbert is a marketing strategy. It's the most popular and successful new comic strip in America today. What does this tell us about the medium? The comic strip exists in that twilight zone where art meets commerce. It could be said that today's comic strip readers get what they deserve, long since uh, sorry, long since psychically kidnapped by the gaudy, mindless, hyperactive uh, world of TV, they no longer demand or expect comic strips to be compelling, challenging, or even interesting. Enter Kathy and Dilbert. Sure, comics are still funny, it's just that the humor has almost no nutritional value. In the tiny space allotted to them, daily strips have all too successfully adapted to their new environment. In this Darwinian setup, what thrives are simply drawn panels, minimal dialogue, and a lot of heads and shoulder shots. Anything more complicated is deemed too hard to read. A full, rich drawing style is a drawback. Simplicity, even crudity, rules. And when the graphics have been dumbed down, the writing follows in short order. What we're left with is a kind of childish, depleted shell of a once vibrant medium. Comics is a language. It's a language most people understand intuitively. So even in the face of all this criticism, Dilbert was a massive success. But Scott Adams couldn't help but swipe back. In response to Norman Solomon's assertion that Dilbert is, an actu- uh, is actually harmful to workers by making them complacent, he authored a strip where Dogbert just reads the argument and offers no rebuttal, essentially making the claim that it's absurd on its own. And in response to Bill Griffith's, uh, Bill Griffith's comments on the simplistic art and lack of value, Adams created two strips where Dogbert draws his own comic that has as much artwork crammed into the panels as possible so that no one will notice there's only one joke and it's on the reader. Dilbert notes that the strip is nothing but a clown with a small head who says random things, and Dogbert responds that he is maintaining his artistic integrity by creating a comic that no one will enjoy. Bill Griffith, a cartoonist in his own right, responded in his strip, Zippy the Pinhead, where he draws in Dilbert's stiff, simplistic style and features the lines, I sense a joke was delivered, and yes, it was, my one joke, ha. I just liked that because it's just a, a really uh, petty way of fighting back and forth at each other. And I, I actually genuinely enjoyed both of those strips. I thought they were uh, like Dilbert's and Zippy the Pinheads. I thought they were both actually really funny, uh, just in the ways that they were uh, poking fun at each other. So my question after hearing this, um, 
I guess because like I I obviously would read you know read the paper kind of looked at the pictures but I never really looked at it since I was younger I never really saw it as like I guess from the way you're explaining it so I guess my confusion is why what was the controversy like controversy like what was I guess I'm having trouble understanding that bit if that makes sense well, the, the point that uh, I think Bill Griffith and others are trying to say is um, with Dilbert specifically, but no, I mean, not just with Dilbert, but with Dilbert specifically, you have a comic strip that really is not making a point. Uh, the jokes are very one note. Um, uh, it, it's it's kind of like if you were to put on um, uh, an episode of a TV show and it's just entirely filler. Uh, there's there's no emotional beat to it really. There's no actual uh, thought put into what is being okay. said. Like, so, so it's sort of it like if you boring, were basically. I mean that is part of the the complaint, but it's also like if you were to turn on a comedian and a comedian is just making dumb jokes and never actually like thinking about the things that he's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, it hits a little differently than if you turn on a comedian who's actually trying to make a point with his jokes. Um. So, like, actually, like, uh, trying to affect a change, you know, you can easily say, like, oh, look, uh, here's a dumb thing that's happening in the world today and leave it at that. Or you can say, here's a dumb thing that's happening in the world today. It would be great if we could change this. And there are ways of working that in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do take some of this. I think it's a little bit harsh uh, criticism of Dilbert. Um but I don't think it's wrong criticism of Dilbert. Mm-hmm. No, that kind of clears it up. I was just, I was just, uh, I guess as someone who doesn't, I guess as some person specifically who doesn't necessarily analyze things all the time, I was just having trouble kind of being like, okay, well, I enjoyed it when I was a kid. Like I thought they were fun to look at. So I guess I just needed some extra clarification. No, I mean, I, I, I've found Dilbert comics today even uh, that I enjoy. And I mean, not to give too much away, I really cannot stand Scott Adams as a person. Um, yeah, you have mentioned that very briefly <laughs> over the last two weeks without any context. So I'm definitely intrigued by that. But like, I mean, I so I don't like him, but I can still find some of them like, oh, I get like, that's funny. Um but there are also ones that I, I, they're, it's weird. It's, it's like boring. I mean, I have, uh, uh, I have a book, um, of Calvin and Hobbes and it's so much fun to read. There's like so much there. Um, and there's, there's a heart to it. And a lot of the time they actually make a point about like the, the, the nature of humanity in some of these, and it's, it's a, it's a newspaper comic strip. Um, so it can be done. Uh, it's just that with Dilbert, that it never goes beyond. Wow. So would you say that Dilbert was kind of like an easy, was a simple way for someone to get a lot of attention, like doing the bare minimum to do them to get the most attention? I mean, uh, probably. I would say that. I mean, I don't. I don't want to take away from the accomplishment that it is to actually make a comic strip like that. Like he can be a terrible person, and it can be like very one note, and it's still a good accomplishment. 
uh, and something that is like a lot of work had to go into it just to get it started. I don't necessarily think that. So like there, there is a difference there. Like when you start something um, and you get it going, there is also going to be a point of reflection where you have to look, you take a step back and go, what am I actually saying with this? You know, mm-hmm. it's like if you break down a movie, even, you know, you can watch a movie. It could be a dumb movie, but there's a point to almost every movie. And if yeah. the point you're making in the movie is at direct odds with something like what you're actually trying to say, you should have had a moment to like reflect upon that. Or like you can course correct, you know, there are ways to like uh, change things in just a little bit. I mean, obviously it worked out very well. He's very well off financially. So yeah. it, it, it went somewhere. <laughs> uh, but even with all of this criticism, it's worth pointing out just how popular Dilbert actually was. By 1999, the comic had gathered enough attention to be given a television show by UPN and lasted two seasons with the full 30 episodes between them. During its run, it was the highest rated comedy series in the network's history and won a primetime Emmy before its cancellation. Now, I should say that it had the highest uh, rated comedy series. When I say that it was the highest rated comedy series in the network's history, it that doesn't mean that much. <laughs> uh, it, you you can have other like you can have a comedy show on a channel that doesn't do a lot of comedy, and if it is the highest rated on that channel, doesn't mean much. Yeah. Uh, uh, now, when asked about the show's cancellation, Adam said it was on UPN, a network that few people watch, and because of some management screw ups, you never heard of UPN? <laughs> no. Oh. Oh my God. I watched it a lot when I was younger. They had Moesha, Star Trek was on it for a while. Buffy was on it for a while. Um, I mean, unless it was like absolved by another channel. I don't know. I never. It might I, have been. Because I, I don't know. I never heard of now, them. Now I need to look it up. Hold on. Because I used to watch UPN. Did you ever watch, like, uh, did you ever watch Brandy? Or I mean, sorry. Did you ever watch Moesha? No, never heard of it. Everybody Hates Chris was on it. Veronica Mars. Damn. I mean, I've heard of some of these shows, but I've never heard of the channel. So it, it like, um, UPN uh, and the WB shut down, and then it became the CW. Sort of like both, from what I understand. I, this, the, the television network thing is very confusing to me. <laughs> yeah. All right, so anyway, back to the... It was on UPN, a network that few people watch, and because of some management screw-ups between the first and second seasons, the time slot kept changing, and we lost our viewers. We were also scheduled to follow the worst TV show ever made, Shasta McNasty. On TV, your viewership is 75% determined by how many people watch the show before yours, and that killed us. That's what he originally said. Later, he claims... The UPN network literally made the decision to focus on African-American viewers at that time. And then even later, he specifically states, I lost my TV show for being white. So this is a strange (laughs) claim, considering that around the same time, or within a couple of years of the show's cancellation, UPN aired Star Trek Voyager, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and Veronica Mars, all of which feature predominantly white cast and crew. Looking at this and looking at the ratings at the time, it actually makes a point that the viewership wasn't there to justify the existence of the programming and calls into question Adams' own contradictory stories about its cancellation. 
This also brings in, uh, uh, brings up the two previous times that he claimed he lost a job for being white. Neither one of those were things that he admitted to or said or, or claimed when it was originally brought up. The previous two times that he lost a job that he claims for being white did not become a story of him losing a job for being white until much later. Throughout the years that Dilbert was growing in success, Adams won several recognitions, including Best Syndicated Strip of 1997 in the Harvey Awards, which are awards given for achievements in comic books and named after Harvey Kurtzman, founder of Mad Magazine. The strip itself was being produced and collected into several books under names like Shave the Whales and It's Obvious You Won't Survive by Your Wits Alone, and Adams was continuing to grow his wealth. See, he wasn't just content on growing the success of his work. Adams began marketing himself. During a 1997 interview on Canada's national CBC radio, he was asked about Dilbert being used in corporate commercials and if he saw any ethical problems with this. Now, keep in mind, this is because if you actually read Dilbert, the almost entirety of the jokes are based on uh, corporate ineffectiveness and bureaucracy and just sort of making fun of uh, this sort of uh, world that has been created by, like, uh, uh, by corporate spending. So when asked if he saw any ethical problems with this, Adams responded, um, no, I guess I'm unique as cartoonists go in the sense that my background is business school instead of art school. And you can probably see that fairly clearly in what I do with Dilbert. So I regard him as an employee, not as, not as a piece of art. And the interviewer adds, uh-huh, right. So he doesn't have to have any principles to which Adams responds, needs none whatsoever which I think is pretty telling and will come back around towards the end, especially the part about like this all being a business school thing rather than an art school thing. Uh, And so that line I feel uh, gets to how Adams views business practices in general. They don't have to be ethical and they don't really have to follow any real guidelines other than the pursuit of capitalist achievements, which he is very familiar with. A quick glance online finds several books he's authored over the years on businesses and management, as well as being currently listed in several speaking agencies' portfolios of talent, offering his services for private or corporate events for somewhere in the range of fifty to $75,000, which is down from the early 2000s of around $100,000 per speech. Now, I won't spend much time discussing his books since, uh, to be honest, I found them incredibly boring. I will be the first to admit I did not read all of them or even all of one of the books. I read passages from a few I could find and synopsis of some of the others. They are full of somewhat useful information, but mostly comedic takes on business life that, for me, didn't really seem to add much to the actual information being given. That's not an actual review of the book since I don't work in a traditional corporate environment, don't hold a degree in business, nor do I regularly read business books. They just don't really appeal to me, and I don't think that they were meant to. I will, however, point out some interesting things that I have found. For the book The Dilbert Principle, Adams introduces a concept which is directly linked to the Peter Principle. The Peter Principle argues that in a given hierarchy, people rise to their level of incompetence. Basically, this means that you get promoted until you are unable to be proficient at the job. Uh, So, like... You could start off in a grocery store and you can bag uh, like groceries and everything. But like if you get promoted up to management and you 
can kind of maintain that, but you can't really do anything more than that, you're going to get stuck at management. Same with like if you get promoted to, to working like the cashier position. You might be good at that, but then you're never going to go any further because you don't know how to run the next step. Adams's take, however, states that people who are incompetent at their jobs already get promoted to management positions so that they stop interfering in the productivity at work. He doesn't try to pass this off as anything other than satirical, and I think that his ability to point to these types of issues that uh, you can connect with on an emotional level is part of his success. He knows that these things aren't true, but they are just ridiculous enough and just based on truth enough and emotionally resident enough to reach the people who feel like they, stu- uh, they are stuck in a hopeless corporate environment. And that sort of logic continues in today's books. In Loser Think, he details two ideas he believes should be adopted in order to break from the constant issues plaguing internet culture. Those two concepts are the 20-year rule and the 48-hour rule. They state, Everyone should be automatically forgiven for any mistakes that they made more than two decades ago, with the exception of some serious crimes. And everyone should be given a grace period of a couple of days to retract any controversial statement they've made, no questions asked. We live in a better world if we accept their apologies, no matter what, whether we think internally it's insincere. So these are both um, rules that he has made based on feeling. They tend to sound right, but fall apart when they're actually thought about for a little longer. It's hard to say what a serious crime is and differentiate that from other crimes in order to say what is forgiven and what isn't. It's similarly insincere to argue that blanket forgiveness for apologies made after controversial statements are good. Many people make controversial statements to test the waters for their thoughts or to put a thought out into the world before apologizing and acting as though it's not what they meant. True apologies show remorse, and those should be taken into account. But there is no way to address these difficult situations with one reaction. These aren't, these aren't like bad thoughts but just presented with little substance. In The Joy of Work, Adams writes an entire chapter on office pranks, which I can only imagine makes the work environment insufferable. He also lashes out at people who were offended or criticized Dilbert strips by stating, it is the proximity of sensitive subjects to negative concepts that cause people who are angry for no good reason, and then in parentheses, nuts, to take offense. (laughs) Uh, For Dilbert and the Way of the Weasel, the most interesting thing about the book is actually the marketing strategy that Adams used to promote it. Adams announced that he would dedicate a strip to Dilbert having sex if the book became the number one seller on Amazon. (laughs) Needless to say, this put a lot of people off and Adams himself characterized it as what will someday be hailed as the worst idea of the century. And given actually... (laughs) Given actually some of Adams's other business practices later, I think he outdid himself. So we've touched a bit. What? <laughs> oh my so we've God. touched a bit on his work and his early life, but we haven't really talked much about who Scott Adams is outside of his work on Dilbert. And it's hard to not enjoy just how eccentric he is for the sheer sake of why the fuck not. So Scott's home is a 7,000-square-foot mansion designed in partnership with an architect featuring a Dilbert-shaped wall, an indoor basketball court, a tennis court, an acre-large backyard, a kitchen with three microwaves, a 10-seat movie theater, a gym, and a room full of beauty salon equipment. 
Three microwaves. Three microwaves. He, he, uh. That is um, so excessive. He, he wrote a thing about how much you. He wrote a thing about how much he like really enjoys popcorn. And that has something to do with the fact that he has three microwaves. I don't really under, like. How much popcorn is he making? I I guess a lot. Like uh, simultaneously, or is there like one microwave dedicated to just popcorn, and then? Uh, oh no! I think they're all. I think they're all popcorn microwaves. See, to me, like that's actually it's not that far off from something that like uh, some people in my family have uh, suggested, which is basically having like a microwave or a TV in almost every room. The TV thing uh, in particular. It's like I'm gonna have a TV in the bathroom. Well, the that TV was a big thing. Every- the TV in every room thing, like, obviously, I, I've never seen one in a bathroom, except for, like, on TV, but, I mean, growing up, we had one, and, like, my family had one in their bedrooms, or, like, in the living room, and then there was, like, a family room, uh, so, like, I kind of, I mean, I wasn't allowed to have one, that was, like, the line was drawn there, but I, I never heard of microwaves, like, that's crazy. Maybe because I grew up without the microwave in my house. So, I, I, yeah, I don't so know. I, I and it's I'm I'm also the worst person to 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 really talk about this because I I grew up with microwaves in my my house as a kid, but I also don't have one now, and I don't really care for them. So, uh, yeah. So I don't know. I, I don't. Haven't, I, I haven't used the microwave in what over a year now. So it's just like. It's the thing where it's like, I mean, it. I, I can't really judge, but I also feel like three is a bit excessive. It's so excessive. If you're making that much popcorn, get a popcorn maker, like one of those fancy ones. Oh yeah, you know I mean? that right? actually sounds. My parents sounds have amazing. one, uh, and it's so easy. It's and it's better too. It tastes better because like you get to add as much of like flavoring as you want and everything. Very like customizable. Oh, I like that. I like now this part. next part. I this next part, I had a lot of fun with. <laughs> In a blog post from 2006 titled "Are Smart People Dumb," Adams wrote about his once membership in Mensa with the following. Oh my God. I decided to take an IQ test administered by Mensa, the organization of geniuses. If you score in the top 2% of people who take the same test, you get to call yourself a genius and optionally join the group. I squeaked in and immediately joined so I could hang out with the other geniuses and do genius things. I even volunteered to host some meetings at my apartment. Then, the horror. It turns out that people who join Mensa and attend meetings are, on average, not successful titans of industry. They are instead, and I say this with great affection, huge losers. I was making $735 per month and I was like frickin' Goldfinger in the crowd. We had a guy who was some sort of poet who hoped to one day start writing some of them down. And we had people who were literally too smart to hold a job. The rest of the group dressed too much like street people to ever get past security for a job interview. And everyone was always available for meetings on weekend nights. So this was an interesting point to me since Mensa is reserved for the top 2% of IQs based on the commonly accepted bell curve. And that means about one in every 50 people is eligible for membership with those that actually join Mensa being a much smaller pool. Which I I didn't know it was like, like to, when you say top 2%, it sounds like a really small amount of people, but one in every 50 is the actual number if you break that down. For uh, what? 
for for people who can join Mensa or join, people who yeah. are like labeled labeled as geniuses. So like it's, when you hear people being like, "Oh, that person could be in Mensa." It sounds like a much bigger achievement than it actually is. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I've heard a lot of weird things about that. Well, past. I also I have a I have a particular issue with the idea of IQ, like just sort of measuring people's uh, intelligence and giving it like a rating in terms of like, oh, you can accomplish so much because of blah, 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 blah. But also that, measuring it based on a test. And measuring, you know, yeah. Like, and there's, it's, it's flawed from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, not everyone is a good test taker. It doesn't mean you're not smart. It doesn't mean you can't be accomplished. So, well, it's also, it's, it's like, a, how, do you, how do you test these things in terms of like, how do you logically yeah. like work things through? Well, you know like, how. S- s- things being put down on paper are not going to be the same as like you actually figuring something out in, uh, uh, in your field or uh, just working in everyday life. Mm-hmm. So in 2013, Sophie Gilbert wrote for The Washingtonian about her experience with Mensa coming to nearly the same conclusion. During my year as a Mensa member, I met a man sporting blonde ringlets, lipstick, and a full beard. A knight in a suit of armor with chainmail that he made me touch. A man I'm fairly sure knows all of the nuclear codes and a borderline racist. I lost at cryptograms. I managed to get out of attending a hot tub party and a chocolate orgy. And I left with the nagging suspicion that Mensa is where brilliant but very socially awkward people go to get laid. Get laid or play board games, whichever they're in the mood for. And Adams let his membership expire. So, like, I, I, w- I don't want to, like, just say, like, oh, he's a member of M- Mensa. He joined it, I think, out of, like, the, uh, just, you know, the ego boost that you get from being like, oh, I'm a Mensa member. Yeah. Uh, and then realized this is dumb and <laughs> didn't, didn't just let it expire. <laughs> but I just thought that was funny. Um, in the late 1990s, he started suffering from focal dystonia, which is a neurological condition that affects groups of muscles, often causing involuntary contractions. In Adams' case, his pinky began twitching as he was drawing. Even though he only needed to draw the comic for around two hours a day, this greatly impacted his ability to do so. And in an interview with The New Yorker, he states, I first got symptoms over 10 years ago and drew some strips left-handed while working through it. Over time, I retrained the hand by a gradual process of getting closer and closer to the motion of drawing without actually drawing, until my brain somehow allowed it. The problem is in the brain. That can be proven by the fact that my right hand would spasm when I draw with my left hand. Anyway, I was probably the first person who ever overcame that particular problem. And about 10 years later, I overused the hand again and the problem returned. This time, I ditched paper and pen and started using the Wacom Cintiq 21UX, which allows me to draw directly to the computer screen. And although the motion is the same as drawing on paper, my brain doesn't recognize it as such and I have no problems whatsoever. Now, the dystonia has gone away again, but would pop up if I started overusing the hand and drawing on paper again. But that won't happen. The computer cuts my production time in half. I love it. I found that. that that's actually kind of cool. I don't know how truthful it is that he's the only person to ever, or the first person to ever overcome it, but that's pretty nifty. Yeah. Let's get back a little bit to like who he is as a person. He met his wife uh, at a gym while, and I quote, she was working and I was working out. He hired her to do some administrative, uh, administrative work for him, and not long after, he proposed. In 2006, Adams married Shelley Miles aboard the Galaxy Commodore yacht in the San Francisco Bay. They then headed out to his family moon with her six- and eight-year-old children and both sets of parents on a Disney cruise to the Caribbean. And I just really hate 
the use of family moon there, but whatever. Uh, Throughout this time, he suffered from spasmodic dysphonia, a condition that caused the vocal cords to, in Adams's case, clench shut whenever he tried to speak. He recovered from this condition temporarily, but eventually underwent surgery to reroute the nerve connections to his vocal cords, which allowed him to regain the ability to speak. And then in 2014, he and his wife separated, and Shelley moved to, uh, to a home just down the block from their house. According to Adams, they separated due to restrictions on blending preferences and not how they felt about each other. In fact, they remained best friends. And this might seem like an awful time for Scott, since in his words, he lost my wife and stepkids all at once. But he described it as, this past year was the most fun of my entire life. If I told you what a typical Tuesday looks like for me these days, you'd cry. (laughs) This isn't really an expression of happiness over his loss, but instead Adams found a way to embrace the change and remain upbeat. In his words, I was free to reinvent my social life in any fashion I like, uh, and I had the resources to do just that. So, I mean, at least, like, he's just, he's trying to remain upbeat a bit about, um, like, the weird changes in his life. I don't know what he means by blending preferences in terms of, like, why they separated, but uh, mm-hmm. at least they got to remain friends. Uh, I don't know much about their particular relationship, and I don't really care to get too much into that because she's not really a public figure. So I don't really, like, I don't care about that. I more care about, like, him as a public figure. Yeah. Uh, But that's all we're going to talk about on today's episode. There's a lot more to talk about, including um, Scott Adams' internet presence, uh, which is a bit problematic. There's also a lot to talk about, like, his other businesses, uh, which are particularly funny. And also just his further writing. Uh, which we will get into. I just wanted to give you a brief overview of who this man was before we go a little bit further into why he's such a dick. (laughs) Oh, wonderful. I'm so excited to hear more. Um, You can find more information, including all of the sources for today's episode at comicallypedantic.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching at PedanticCast and at Derek L. Chase on both platforms. New episodes come out most Sundays, but part two will be out this Wednesday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at comicallypedantic.com. This show is entirely listener-supported, and if you'd like to support this show, help us stay ad-free, and possibly be mentioned on air, you can check out the Patreon link at the top at www.comicallypedantic.com. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them in, text or audio recording to comicallypedantic at gmail.com. Please indicate if you'd like your name or question read on the air. We will be back in a few days, but until then, you can find more exciting adventures at your local comic shop. (laughs) 